Hello, everyone, my closest friends in the whole widest of worlds. Yes, welcome back to Avatar, the podcast. I'm Booster Greg. That's Acorn Bandit. And what edition is this? Uh, comic edition. Comic edition. I almost forgot that That's part. That's the thing. Yeah. I, I was saw, like, wait, I, edition. I was <laughs> mid, like my brain was forming the words and you just started moving. And I was like, oh, I've forgotten, but I'm already talking. It's comic edition. It's the comic edition. That's right. We are on the North in South part two, or as we like to call it, Gilox Rev Oil Illusion. That is right. And <laughs> <laughs> I do like that one. That's, that's yeah, it was, very it was clever. Good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> before we dive into the episode, we do have a couple reviews to read and well, one news item and something I want to throw out there into the world. I've already posted about it on Twitter, but I'm going to bring it up again. The first review comes from Dahlia, the Avatar fan. And Dahlia writes, Azul Awesome, best Avatar The Last Airbender pod ever. Aww. I know, it's so nice. I just love this podcast. It's funny, awesome, and expands the world of Avatar. It's great listening to you guys talk about the Avatar world. My top five favorite characters are Toph, Momo, Tylee, Zuko, and Suki. Nice list. Very nice list. Absolutely. Thank I love that Azul Awesome. That's a great fun. Yep. I practice that quite a bit. <laughs> Once you get it, you get it. And that's, I think, is the sign of, uh, my opinion, a good pun. Because it takes mm -hmm. practice and dedication. Exactly. Like Revolution. Revoil. Yeah. There we go. Another great example, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Dahlia, thank you so much for leaving the five-star review. We super appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. Our next review comes from Lyric, who says, yes, that's their real name, who writes, incredible podcast. My name is Lyric and I found this podcast during the quarantine of 2020. The first episode was suggested to me when it dropped right after I finished watching Avatar The Last Airbender the first time. I've been listening to this weekly since the beginning and it's so nice to grow up with the show and find new perspectives of the show. The time and effort put into this show is super appreciated and I'm super excited to continue growing with the podcast. Oh, it's so nice. That's so sweet. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Lyric. Thank you. Also, I love your name. Yes, I know um, not really your doing, but I appreciate your parents' decision. Yes. <laughs> it's quite musical, but I do say so myself. Oh, mm -hmm. oh yeah. yeah. Lyric's mm -hmm. like I hate Greg now. First pun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, second pun, technically. Second pun. Third. Third, yes. If we include Azul Awesome. Mm -hmm. Which is not mine. Which is not ours. Which is not ours. So I guess that's second. We're still on number two. We'll get more. It's fine. Third featured pun. There we go. On the episode. There we go. As we kind of said before, there are a couple things we want to talk about. The first thing, if anyone follows me on Twitter at Booster Greg, I felt inclined to post a Twitter poll about our discussion of where we think Lou Ten is buried. I know we talked about this quite a bit in Smoke and Shadow, and I think we both came to the conclusion that we believe that Lou Ten is buried in the royal gravesite. And, you know, he has a nice little little spot for himself because, after all, he was at one point considered prince because... Mm -hmm. Crown prince. Crown prince, yeah. Yeah, because Iroh was considered to be the rightful heir to the Fire Lord throne. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, well, we don't know... Because Ozai is petty and loves to rule over everyone with an iron fist and remind everyone what his place is. No, really? I, I can't believe it myself. 
He seems like such a stand-up guy. Sounds like such a nice guy. Why would he? Why would he ever? Yeah. Well, anyways, over on the Geek Gen Discord, our friend Shulta brought this up and was like, well, I don't know if I agree with what you guys landed on. And we kind of went into a little bit of a discussion on it. I won't read it, but if you want to head over to the Geek Gen Discord and see it, it will be right there. And as much as I want Luten to be buried at the Royal Gravesite, I don't know if I can 100% subscribe to that theory anymore. Mm, because mm-hmm. our thinking was, well, if Azulon was still Fire Lord when Luten was buried, then yes, he would be at the Gravesite. But he got killed so quickly. Everything happened so fast that it's possible that Ozai was Fire Lord when it came time to bury Luten's body. Mm-hmm. And Ozai was like, yeah, no, let's not let him be buried in the royal family graveyard. Right, because he really wanted to just stick it to his brother and be like, I won and this is proof. Now, Schulte was saying that he thinks that a lot of people, I think, think that Luten is buried on that hill in Ba Sing Se. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's buried there either. I think that was more of a more of a ceremony just for Iroh because he couldn't return back home. So yeah, he was memorial. having a memorial there. Yeah. It was not the physical gravesite, but in spirit, I guess. Mild pun. That's not my finest work. We'll get better. <laughs> That's half points. Yeah. So I put a poll on my Twitter and it's 50-50 split. It will be well over by the time this episode airs. But that doesn't mean we don't want to hear about what you all think. Mm -hmm. So you can join the Geek Gen Discord. You can tweet at us. You can email us. You can leave a five-star written review about this. What do you think? You think Luten hopefully is at the Royal Gravesite? Or is he in an unmarked mass grave, which is the worst case scenario? But I think Ozai would most like... Or somewhere in between. (laughs) Just... I don't know. I don't think Ozai goes somewhere in between. I think he goes all or nothing. But anyway, (laughs) I don't want to think about that any longer. It's just something that I think merits more of a discussion. That's all. Mm -hmm. The second bit of news. I'm so excited about this. Recently, it was announced. And by recently, I mean like a couple days ago. There's going to be an Avatar The Last Airbender mobile game launching. Now, (gasps) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so the details are kind of sparse right now, but there is an official website, avatargenerations.com. And it appears that this is going to be from the developer Navigator Games. They haven't done anything too crazy. I believe they're Canadian dev, if I'm not mistaken. The game I've seen them do is a turn-based game. So it's kind of like there's a DC game that's very similar where you just get your heroes and you go up against enemies and it's turn-based and that's that. That's what it seems like. The landing page is beautiful. It's got Appa and Aang, Momo, Katara, and Sokka just like flying. It's like a full page splash image. It is gorgeous. I love it. I want to say it's new arcs. I don't think I've seen it before. We've seen something similar. Yes, I think so as well. Yeah. And it looks like Square Enix Montreal is going to be the publisher. So Ah. they got a little bit of the name behind it. Squeenix. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any release date for the U.S. yet, but it looks like Canada, U.K. Or actually, sorry, Canada, South Africa, and Sweden will get a release sometime this month. And then everyone else will get it when we get it. But get Mm. excited because you're going to be able to play Avatar video games on the phone while watching Avatar on your TV, which is what I'm going to do. Yep. Two layers of Avatar, soon to be more. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Avatar Studios. Thank you so much. I'm excited. This got sent to me from several different sources. 
When I say sources, I mean people listen to the podcast. I don't have any inside sources or anything like that. <laughs> I wish I did, but I do not. Our close personal friends of the podcast. Our close personal friends of the podcast. Navigator games. Just kidding. But please. <laughs> please. please. Anyways, that's it. That's all. I'm just very excited about both of those things. We should probably talk about the episode now. Yeah, let's jump into this. Mm-hmm. So North and South Part 2, as always, was written by Jean Luen Yang and are by Gertie Hero. And we start this issue with Hakoda and three of his officers investigating the Fire Nation shipwreck searching for Gilok and his secret society. Why does everyone have a secret society these days? Oprah got involved. Oh, you have Jane. a secret society. You, you get, get a secret you society. Get one. And then, you know what's <laughs> driving me even more crazy now? What's that? When we start Korra. This uh-huh. is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen Korra. Slight spoiler. There's another secret society in there. Another. We're never going to get rid of secret societies in Avatar. It wouldn't be Avatar without secret societies. I guess you're right. I guess so. Because I guess the Dai Li technically had their own little secret exactly. society. Mm-hmm. All right, fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Well, anyways, Hakoda and his troops find the wreck and the caverns beneath it abandoned, but discover that Gilok has left a message for them to find. That message reads, soon you will see the truth, chieftain. We drift over to Melina and Malik, who meet up with Katara and Sokka to give the siblings a tour of their factory, which looks almost exactly like the earthen fire refinery. Mm-hmm. just snow colored. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they bought the snow skin for the Sims or right? Sim City. It's what it looked like. <laughs> yep. As Malik starts to explain their mission and reason for coming to the Southern Water Tribe, Katara and Sokka quickly tune them out and talk about Hakoda and Melina's secret romance. Sokka, while somewhat put off by the image of his father smooching Melina, wasn't like super bothered by it, which we talked about <laughs> last time. That was Mm -hmm. our prediction. Yeah. And Katara just won't even entertain the thought of her father with another woman. Yep. Malik asks if Sokka or Katara have any questions. And Sokka just has the one. What exactly is your vision again? Malik is stunned since he just spent the last 10 minutes explaining exactly what his vision was in great detail. Sokka. Yeah. But Melina is able to summarize the whole thing very succinctly. Essentially, they found oil underneath the thick ice and are planning to extract it. She says that this oil is the key to, quote unquote, lifting up the South. Mm, That dynamic was very Sokka Katara to me. Yeah. Sokka blabbering on about whatever thing and then Katara cutting through being, okay, here's the gist. Two sentences, we're done. Yes, I absolutely agree. They've been doing this. It was a little more subtle, I think, in the first issue. But in this one, they're really hammering it in because they're going to make a big reveal that everyone saw coming. Mm-hmm. But they're really trying to pull on the mirror imagery of Melina and Malik and Sokka and Katara. Mm-hmm. Yep. Melina talks about lifting up the South. And Katara didn't realize that the South needed to be lifted up. She is offended. Yeah, she's like, lift it up. Uh, where are you going with this? <laughs> Already getting offended. Yes, yes. And I feel like she has every right to be offended. Do not of get course. me wrong. Do not misunderstand me on this. I feel like, though, she's just like really digging her heels in too because she just 
has it out, especially for Melina. Right. Guitar Stubbornness is coming out. Yes. And she's justified mm-hmm. with oh, her absolutely. offense. But yeah, you're right. She's also digging in because it's Melina saying this. Yeah. If it was anyone else, I don't think she would be as sassy. I think she would be mm-hmm. very confrontational about it. Don't get me wrong. But like, I don't think she would be like speaking under her breath in this kind of like almost soccer like manner. <laughs> yeah. She might be frowning pretty hard, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe even if, if it wasn't Melina, she might go into like a classic Katara speech. Uh-huh. But instead, right. she's just so angry. Malik passionately explains that the oil under the ice will usher in a new age of machinery into the world, allowing machines to become a part of people's everyday lives and will even level the playing field between benders and non-benders. While Katara never viewed non-benders as being anything less than, Sokka completely understands where Malik is coming from and uses the earthen fire refinery to further explain the point. When Sokka brings up the refinery, we learn that both Melina and Malik are business partners with earthen fire industries and even have a forklift on loan from them. (laughs) Sokka's thrilled. He's so excited. Melina tells them that the company is sending over a representative to help them. And that representative is none other than a coat-clad, shoe-wearing Toff Beifang. Toff! Yay! I think she changes her title. I didn't write down what it was, but she was like, I think you mean this. And it's a much longer, more elaborate title. Yeah, they're like, this is the representative. And she's like, um, excuse me, executive partner. Yes, that's what I'm it was. I'm an executive partner executive now. Executive partner. Thank you very much. Don't get that wrong again. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Very proud of her work that she's doing. As well she should be. Yep. Sokka and Katara hug their friend the moment they see her, and Toph apologizes for not recognizing them sooner, but her boots are making everything all fuzzy. Also, I imagine the snow would too. The snow not being hard ground. It's kind of fluffy and squishy. I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah, she blames the shoes, but it might not be entirely the shoe's fault. Mm -hmm. Interesting. She accidentally slaps Sokka to further illustrate her point in laughs when Sokka notes that she did that on purpose because she most definitely did. After Toph tells Melina and Malik that she looks forward to working with them, Katara and Sokka learn that there is going to be a festival in town that evening and Melina insists that they come as their guests of honor. As soon as food is mentioned, Sokka accepts the invite, much to the chagrin of his sister. Yeah, she's like... (laughs) I love how they they actually set it up on that page because he's like, I'm liking this lady more and more. And mm-hmm. Katara is like, only because she keeps feeding you. And he's like, so? <laughs> you say that like it's a bad thing. Uh-huh. Also, at this point, I just want to touch on the fact that all of this is happening because they found a large oil deposit underneath the ice in the South Pole. Yeah. It's one thing for the earthen fire refinery to be refining rock and minerals and gems and whatever the things that they're finding in the earth. It's another thing to start drilling for oil. When I read that, I was like, oh God, Mm. in this day and age, Mm -hmm. in our crisis that we're living through, Mm -hmm. I could see it happening. I could see it starting. I'm like, oh, please, no, please don't go down that road. We know how it's going to end up. Yeah. Fossil fuels are not the way to go. No. Yeah. It's interesting. North and South right now, mm-hmm. this story, because it feels like we're re- just rehashing what we went through on the rift, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Yang is trying to also be less subtle with the commentary by being like, no, it's oil. And just like looking at us and we're like, <laughs> yeah, you did this in the rift. 
also being like, see how history repeats itself. Yes. How like the human civilization would develop naturally, finding resources and being like, this is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Not realizing the path that they're going down, where it's going to wind up in the future. Yeah. But again, it's just rehashing what we already went over on the rift. Here's what I think, though. I've been thinking about this quite a bit since we recorded the last episode. I think there's just the slightest difference, even though it feels like a super rehash to me, because this is more of a larger land, a larger civilization, kind of taking over a smaller civilization. When in the Avatar world, it's been the exact opposite this entire time. It's been the Fire Nation, which is, I'm going to go out on limb and say, the smallest Mm. power in the Avatar world from a land mass and population standpoint. Right. It does seem like that because they're on the island versus the giant Earth Kingdom continent. Yeah. So this is kind of like a mirror image of that. And then we also have the mirror imagery of Saka, Katara, Melina, Malik. There's a lot of parallels going on here. Mm -hmm. But still, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of put that out there that maybe that's kind of where Yang's coming from is like, like a bully, quote unquote, taking over and trying to colonize one of their supposed to be sister tribes. Yeah. But taking advantage of it. Yeah, and you're right. There is a lot of arcs that the Yang and Gurihiru team cover in these comics, and that is absolutely one of them. I know it was noted for this comic in particular that the central tension is going to be that interplay between cultural identity and diversity. And specifically, Yang has mentioned that he wanted to explore whether it was possible for economically and militarily small cultures to interact with larger cultures without losing their cultural identity. Interesting. But here's my thing with that. The South, they established in the animated series that the South doesn't really have that much of a culture anymore. It got basically obliterated by the Fire Nation. Mm -hmm. I like to think that after the war, when the remaining men of the Southern Water Tribe returned, a little bit more of their culture was... Restored. Yeah, was restored because everyone was back together again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know it's interesting because they are economically and militarily very small, Mm -hmm. especially compared to their sister tribe of the Northern Water Tribe, but then also compared to the rest of the world too. I think they might be the smallest settlement out of everyone smallest nation oh for sure for sure i don't know about settlement but nation settlement i was like you think this well let me ask you this do you think the southern water tribe is larger or smaller than the kiyoshi island i want to say actually now that i think about it they're probably about the same size i was thinking roughly yeah interesting yeah because the same concept you know they're in this isolated place there's kiyoshi island and there's the south pole Mm -hmm. there's only so much of the land you can inhabit Mm -hmm. because you have to be close to those resources like the ocean for food and that sort of thing and the further south you go you probably get more and more remote more and more exposed to the elements and that sort of thing so they, they do have some of these confines with space and we also know that there's different settlements and tribes on both the kiyoshi island and also in the south pole And that's what we're also exploring here is this, all these disparate tribes coming together and starting to become one nation and electing Hakoda as the head chieftain and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, but it's, it is interesting to see those kind of progressions while we're throwing them into the world stage with all the other nations and all the stuff that's happening post-war. Yeah. I will say this. This is not my favorite story arc, but I am curious to see how it ends. Mm-hmm. Very curious. Me too. Sokka accepts the invite to the festival and Katara doesn't really want to go, but it doesn't matter because we're going to fast forward right to the festival, which looks super fun, by the way. It's very pretty. Yeah. It's well lit. 
they have so many carnival games going on and festival uh-huh. games. It's great. Food stalls. Yeah. The whole, whole shebang. They have a stage in the center of it all and just all of the tents just circling it. It's great. And it's right near that makeshift office that Hakoda has been kind of using. Mm-hmm. So Katara, Sokka, and Toph are wandering around and they happen upon a high striker game. I didn't know that this is what this was called. Me neither. High striker. Okay. That's what it's called. Yeah. So the wiki said high striker and then I Googled high striker because like that can't be real. And it is. I don't know. Who knew? It's oh my gosh. For anyone who doesn't know, that's when you have the bell at the top and you have to like hit this platform with a hammer and it goes all the way up and dings and you make a prize. You're looking for the bing. Yeah, Yeah. 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 That. It's usually the strong man or strong woman kind of thing. That's exactly what I know it as. Yeah. yeah the strong man test. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Well, Toph is just so focused on beating it. She sees it and she goes, I can do that. And Sokka <laughs> ends up joining her. <laughs> He's just like, yeah. I want to see this. Yeah. And Sokka's the one that points it out. He's like, Toph, the poundy poundy game is here. And yes. she's like, the poundy poundy game, my favorite. <laughs> it's so good. What happens a little bit later? And I touch upon it, but it's just so funny. It made me chuckle. Katara does not join them and decides to stay behind and is very quickly approached by her, what I'm now calling her Grand Paku. I knew it. I knew that's what you were going to (laughs) do. Grand Paku. For anyone who doesn't know, that's your new mix, Grandpa with Master Paku. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Explain the pun, make it funnier. Yeah, this is 47% funnier. You're all welcome. Uh-huh. Grand yep. Paku, who introduces Siku and Sura, who are two young waterbending students of his. When Katara asks the two how their lessons are going, they deny being waterbenders at all and run off. Katara is understandably confused by this, but Grand Paku shows her that the kids only waterbend when they think nobody is looking and note how talented they are for their age when they're playing in the snow. Mm-hmm. Aww. Yeah, they're like snowbending. It's very impressive. It's like they don't want to share their water bending with anyone but themselves, Grand Paku says, as we pan out and see Toph about to hustle the high striker game. Yep. Toph is like, oh, I'm blind and I am so weak. I'm such a little girl. How can I even? And I'm just laughing. I think I stared at that panel for like five or ten minutes just chuckling classic tough I love oh my it. gosh yep outside the walls of the town Hakoda and his forces have set up a blockade to defend the festival from Gilok's forces by the way everyone if anyone is wondering it is taking all of my self-control to say Gilok Why is and that? not because I hate him and I don't want to respect him <laughs> by saying what his actual name is <laughs> Ugh, this whole comic I was reading it and just mentally putting Bato in mm-hmm. Elok's place and thinking like, how would this have played out? Yeah. And I was so distracted doing that because I thought it would have made such a better story. Yes. I do want to take this moment to really point out very quickly. We did not talk about this on the first episode of North and South because I didn't know this. Apparently, we've seen Keylock before. Have we? Yes. So when I was going through the wiki and I was kind of looking, I didn't want to go too far into the wiki with Keylock because there's spoilers for North and South and I still want to be surprised. But it said first appearance was on the Southern Raiders episode. So I went back and I was skipping through it. And wouldn't you know it? He's in the flashback with Hakoda fighting off the Southern Raiders. Really? He's right there. Yeah. So this is, we're talking about this a little bit earlier before we're recording. This is, I think, Yang trying to pull a Vakir, let's call it. That's what I want Uh to call it because I love Vakir, where we have a background character, 
that was noticeable at first, but we never got a proper backstory for him. So this is essentially Yang is doing secret podcast, but it's now canon because Yang writes the comics. He pulls a background character, creates a backstory, throws them in this world. I think the issue I'm having is that we didn't need a existing new character to be there when we have an existing established character. That would have been a much more interesting dynamic. There would have been more conflict with Hakoda. And on Bato, too. Like, Gilok has zero conflict about what he wants to do. He knows what he wants to do. He's sick into his resolve. And he doesn't have any remorse doing so. Bato would have. I think he would have Mm -hmm. still done it if this is what he believes in. We don't know if this is what he would believe in or not. Because we'll never see him again. But we can imagine if he's on the opposite side, he would be more empathetic. He would, I think, be just a better leader and less ruthless and less two-dimensional. He'd be more nuanced. Nuanced. Thank you. That's the word I wanted. Nuanced. Yes. But also because both Gilok and Bato fought alongside Hakoda. Yeah. So that's Gilok's whole MO. It's like, you fought with me, men. You know that what we stand for as Southern Water Tribe men and what they're doing is going against our ideals and in this and that. Like, Bato could have easily had the same perspective because he was also mm-hmm. a warrior alongside the rest of them. I actually, now that we're kind of talking about it a little bit more, I would have loved Bato to be the leader of the Secret Society and Gilok be his second in command. Yeah. Only to have Bato kind of like soften up and be like, well, let's listen. And then Gilok maybe have a mutiny and then take over. And then there we go. that would have been great. But no, we just got two dimensional Gilok. That's all we got. <sighs> Sad. All right, Gridlock, let's move on. Gilok observes the perimeter through binoculars from a safe distance and remarks that Hakoda's actions are utterly predictable. He rallies his troops around a large metal drill and tells them to prepare themselves for action. Katara leaves the festival to find her father. When asked if Hakoda and his soldiers will be out here all night, he tells Katara that they need to be vigilant and keep watch for Gilok's secret army. (laughs) Secret army. I really don't care about it. If I'm being honest with everyone, secret army. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Eventually, Katara tells her father that she doesn't trust or approve of Melina and that she's afraid that he is blinded by love. Hakoda assures her that this is not the case because the love he shares with Melina is not the blinding kind. It's the kind that helps you see. This is something that Katara is familiar with. And at that moment, she looks up and sees Appa descending towards them and runs over to meet Aang. Yay! Yay! Aang's here too! That'd be weird if it was just Appa. (laughs) Right? Appa alone. Yeah. I mean, just hang out, attend the festival. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And here's something fun. By the time Yang and the Gurihiro team get to scripting this trilogy, they knew that it would be the last arc that they would work on for Avatar The Last Airbender. And so as a result, they intentionally included all of the members of the Avatar team so they could each be written and drawn one last time. That's interesting. Oh, okay. I assumed that Imbalance was this team because we still have three more com- or four more after yep. this episode. I did too until I read that and then I was immediately sad. I'm not ready for this. No, I didn't realize this was our last comic arc with Yang and Gurihiru. Oh, oh I'm sad. I don't want to read Imbalance anymore. Just kidding. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> Slightly. Slightly. <laughs> Slightly just kidding. Oh, man. 
That's a bummer. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So I was sad to hear that, but I was also like, okay, thank you, team, for giving us the characters we love all together. Team Avatar, one last time. Yes. As much as we have our complaints about some of the stuff, it's all very minor, except for Gilok, which I'm going to... This is the the hill that I die on, is Gilok. But um, Yeah. I join you on that hill. Sorry, anyone who doesn't agree. Yes. Yeah. You can have a different opinion. It's totally fine. It doesn't make mm-hmm. ours or yours any more or less. It's just different. And that's all good. Man, I just can't wait to talk about North and South Part 3 now. And just, I think we should, it's what we should do, Acorn. Now that I know this, we'll do like a little five minutes after Part 3 about mm-hmm. everything we loved about this team, about Yang and Goody Hero. Oh, yes, we should do that. Because there's so much to really love about them. We'll do that. So, Aang descends from the heavens. Just kidding. He comes down on Appa, and, <laughs> as he does. And Katara holds her sweetie. And even though Aang wants to kiss her, they both agree it's probably not the best idea in front of her father. Yeah. Awkward. Katara asks if he was able to calm the spirits in the Fire Nation. And Aang catches her up on Azula and that whole charade. And it's like a couple panels of him just like being like, this is what happened. And we all know. So we're moving on. Aang greets Hakoda with a bow, which Hakoda returns. When asked about the blockade set up around them, Hakoda tells him that he has the situation under control and suggests that the two visit the festival. As they walk away, Katara asks Aang if Hakoda has always been kind to him. When Aang answers yes, Katara responds that she should do the same for her father. Aww. Yeah. Starting to come around. I do appreciate how quickly she's coming around. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like this could have been one of those spread it out until another issue or two or even never resolve it and just have her be stubborn and stuck here. But I Mm -hmm. like that she's like, okay, I'll accept Melina. She seems all right. Yeah, she needed that conversation with her dad to be reminded that love is not something that is one dimensional. It's not the thing that is going to blind you. And I love the fact that Aang arrives at that moment because her father tells her that. And then she's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. My relationship with Aang has done all of these positive things for me. It's opened up my eyes to all of this stuff. Like, okay, I get it. Yeah. And it's here too. I quickly was breezing past it. But Hakoda says, I know Melina seems gruff. And I would not describe Melina as gruff in any way. Like any stretch of the definition. She's very like elegant, I think. Yes. And she's very nice. Yeah. And we talked about this last episode where her initial design was more gruff and a bit more I, mm-hmm. I just picture her a lot more muscular in her initial design and maybe like a little rough around the edges but she seems very well kempt she seems very polite and professional so I don't know where I think it's just like maybe something that missed a revision somewhere in the script that's what I was thinking too yeah yeah that is interesting yeah it's like oh she's so gruff she's got a pixie cut it's yeah. like, what? <laughs> and she's polite and nice yeah. and considerate yeah I know oh, so gruff Here's another fun fact before we move on. Yes. Have you noticed that even Toph, Toph showed up to the South Pole and she's wearing a furred version of her original costume. Mm-hmm. It's still yellow and green. It just has some furs. It's longer. It's covering all of her limbs to keep her warm. She has shoes. And then Aang shows up and he's pretty much in his same costume except mm-hmm. for maybe another wrap and then a cape. Yeah, right? it's because airbenders don't get cold. Exactly. Wait, really? Yes. <laughs> and that was a note that the creators gave what? the Goody Hero team. Okay. They said that airbenders don't need much clothing to keep warm in the poles, North Pole and South Pole. So they kept the design pretty simple. 
giving him just, you know, long sleeves and a cloak. And then that design in this comic was used to resemble the clothing worn by Tenzin in The Legend of Korra. Mm. They're bridging a lot of the gap in this. They really are. You know, this stuff is more subtle because we were talking about in previous comic arcs how much we were seeing about Republic City and all of the dynamics of the nations and the world and all of the stuff that was being built up before we get to Korra. I feel like all of that is a lot more subtle in this comic, but it's still there. We have designs that are going to be brought over. We have the conflict between the two water tribe poles, which is going to be referenced in Korra as well. We have that concept of benders and non-benders and the different advantages and disadvantages of them and how yeah. the non-benders will use machines and that whole ideology and philosophy we're going to see in Korra as well with the equalists. So there's a lot still going on here to bring us closer to Korra. It's just a little more subtle. Yeah, when they started talking about benders versus non-benders and the inequality of them, I immediately thought of Amon. Yes. I remembered Amon. I don't remember much about Amon. He had a really cool mask. So I remember. Yeah. I love his mask. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They have like, we've said this during Blue Spirit, but Avatar has the coolest masks out of any fictional universe, in my opinion. It's just amazing. Katara and Aang meet up with Sokka and Toph, who have collected enough small stuffed animals to open up their own zoo. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is one of my favorite parts of the (laughs) festival is in the background Toph basically bogged down with like 10 mm-hmm. stuffed animals in her arms. And then, I'm sure you're going to bring this up. I am. But the progression of Momo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wait, of Momo? Of Momo, yes. I didn't even notice Momo. Okay, okay. So I'm just going to say right here, we first see Toph in the background. She's standing next to Sokka. Sokka's doing one of the games. And mm-hmm. she has like 10 stuffed animals in her arms. Aang and Katara join her and Momo hops onto Toph's head. All right, we're starting there. Okay, hold on. I'm getting to that page. I didn't even see Momo, if I'm being completely honest with you. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this then. Oh, geez. Okay. Oh, my God. There he is. Yep. So he's sitting on Toph's head. He's sitting on Toph's head on top of a... Is that a, a pentapod or a pentapus? Is that a stuffed pentapus? Yes, it is. And he's snuggling a flying lemur plushie. Get so out. that's the progression. That's the progression. He starts off on Toph's head. And yeah. then as they're playing, he finds a lemur plushie and starts cuddling it. Oh, it's so cute. And then the pentapus is on top of a jackalope. Or what were they called from last issue? That's so cute. That's so cute. Yeah, the, the snow leopard caribou. Snow leopard caribou, not jackalope, Greg. Come on. I see where you're going with that, though. Instead of a rabbit with antlers, yep. it is a snow leopard with antlers. So close yet. So, so far. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyways, (laughs) that adorableness happens that I completely just glossed over somehow. And after a short time, Katara does end up spotting Melina in the crowd and calls out to her to wait and thanks her for inviting the two to this festival. So Katara is essentially sucking up her pride, getting over whatever problems she has with Melina and extending an olive branch, if you will. Melina tells Katara to think nothing of it and notices Aang, who is using airbending to win a game at a nearby booth. That's cheating. Yeah, is it though? When you're the only airbender in the world, I guess not. It's just using your natural talents to win at a game. (laughs) That's the way I see it. Would you fault a baseball pitcher for using his pitching arm in such a game? Is that baseball pitcher an airbender who can manipulate the trajectory and the arc of the ball? It doesn't matter. (laughs) It's neither here nor there. 
Melina is absolutely shocked to see the Avatar, and Katara offers to introduce the two. Melina excitedly accepts, but at that moment, Malik finds them and tells his sister that it's time for them to make an announcement. Katara promises to introduce the two after the speech, while Toph and Sokka go on playing booth games. Aang quickly notices the faces of basically everyone else at the festival and realizes that a speech is about to happen. Sokka tries to redeem a... Here it is. This is what I thought you were talking about earlier. This is what I caught and makes me very excited. Sokka tries to redeem a polar bear dog as a prize. Yep, there you go. doesn't have enough wins. I think they said he'll need like six or seven times as many wins as he currently has to get it. Uh-huh. So he gets... I think this is a small snow mouse. I think so too. A snow rat from yeah, the story? From the story. That's what I think yeah. this is. Yes. Yep. So I thought that was nice poetic. It was very cool to put that in there. And now I want a plushie. I want a Naga plushie, basically, because mm-hmm. that's what it is. I love that nod. I so want it so bad. Oh, oh, uh, okay. So yes, I want that. I have a question for you. Uh huh. Do you think that the festival and the vendors at the festival are of Southern Water Tribe or Northern Water Tribe? Ooh, that's a good question. They don't give us much to go by. The reason why I ask, and ultimately, I don't think it makes too much of a difference, but I think you'd be really rubbing the salt in the wound if Thod, or as I would call him, Todd's story about like the snow rat, and like if that's a common well-known story throughout the Southern and Northern Water Tribe, if it's Northern Water Tribe vendors and they're giving out snow rats as prizes, it's like an insult. Ah, that's a really great point. So that's a really great question. And I'm looking at the panel where we see... Oh, yeah. What are they wearing? That's a good call. Exactly. The panel where we see the polar bear dog plushie, we see the back of the vendor. And I feel like that's more of a simple costume, a simple outfit that we would see in the Northern Water Tribe. It doesn't look as traditional yeah. as the Southerners. It's got those like lines, those tailor-made lines. And if you're looking at the same page as I am, anyone who has this, I'm on page 34, I think. And like the panel to the left, it's right when Melina's about to make her speech. You have Southern Water Tribe and on the right you have a vendor. And if you look, the Southern Water Tribe doesn't seem to have many differentiating lines. I don't know what you would even call these, but they look very like, it looks a bit more plain, but more tailored at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the panel that I'm looking at with the polar bear dog in it, um, he's wearing a hat. Yes. With flaps. That's a fancy hat, by the That's way. That's a fancy hat. It's a, a more like hat. modern designed kind of hat. And the same thing with his coat. A lot of the Southern Water Tribe wears outfits with patterns on them, like mm-hmm. the triangles. Oh, the that's different right. like emblems and stuff like that. So I think you might be onto something. Ooh. This might be the Northern Water Tribe bringing their festival planners and their vendors and whatever down to help throw this party. Well, I think that's our official Avatar the Podcast headcanon right there. <laughs> I agree. It's <laughs> just insult to injury. Okay, so anyways, Melina begins to introduce herself and Malik to the crowd and tells them that the Southern Reconstruction Project will elevate the South to the level of the other nations of the world by utilizing its natural resources, a.k.a. oil. During the speech, Tuff feels something underground making its way towards them. She's unsure of anything else because the boots and now possibly the snow are hindering her seismic sense. When Melina asks Toph to say a few words to the crowd, the earthbender yells for everyone to run. As soon as she does, the crowd scatters and Gilok's drill bursts from the ground. 
Elok and his secret army emerge from the drill, holding Malik's briefcase. Oh, yeah. And Todd's there. Freaking Todd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with his sword drawn, Gilok tells the crowd that the North plans to strip their land and destroy everything that they are. Melina demands to know what Gilok is talking about, and the warrior speaks plainly. He tells the crowd of the plan with the oil underneath them and how the North plans to claim it as their own. And what's worse, Gilok has proof. Uh-oh. Everyone is shocked, not only by this news, but when Gilok holds Malik's briefcase, almost like on display. At first, Melina seems to deny the plan for the North to colonize the South, but she eventually admits that this originally was the plan. But they never used the word colony or colonizing in any way. And there was a concern about the South being able to handle such an important resource. Melina also admits that they were wrong and that the plan has since been canceled. Or has it? Because Malik... Guess what? Remember how everyone thought Melina was so gruff in the bad one and Malik was so proper in the good one? And a twist that everyone saw coming, mm-hmm. Malik interrupts his sister and basically does a super villain evil monologue. Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. He informs everyone with a touch smidgen of anger in his voice. That giving the oil to the North is still the plan and it was never canceled. And Malik believes that Melina is wrong to trust the Southerners with anything at all and has gone ahead with your original blueprints. Malik can't seem to help himself and launches into a rant against the Southern Water Tribe where he vilifies the South's culture and society at every turn, calling them backwards and stuck in the past. And he even goes as far to say that the South is not an actual civilization. Oh, boy. What a... (laughs) So this is interesting. This is like a classic gotcha moment where the person who you think is going to be the villain turns out to be good. And then the person who has seemed innocent turned out to be the villain. It was kind of weird for me, though, at the same time, because Malik has just been so easygoing this whole time. And then all of a sudden he whips out his prejudice and is like, the South sucks. He's basically calling them like white trash. Yeah. In our American kind of concept, it's like they're backwards, they're heathens, like all of the classic verbiage that people use to put down another group that isn't as quote unquote developed as the others. I love how he's like, they can't even govern themselves with a cohesive set of laws. And I'm just looking around (laughs) like, what are you talking about? Like, where are you getting this information from? Yeah. Oh, man. With this kind of like reveal, Malik is one of those guys that the smallest thing goes wrong. Like he like drops a pen on the ground and Uh he just completely loses it. All of everything that makes him so like well put together and professional just crumbles at the slightest inconvenience. That is how he's being portrayed. Yeah. He's that guy. Oh, geez. Which, okay, to be fair, they did kind of hint at that in the first issue Mm -hmm. when his briefcase was stolen. He kind of lost it for a second. He's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. But since then, he's been pretty easygoing. Yeah. So it was there, but maybe not to this extent. This is definitely a reveal of his true thoughts. Yeah. And everyone is shocked, including Melina. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Melina repeatedly tries to quiet her brother, but he ignores her. She finally screams at him, demanding he stop. She turns to the crowd and apologizes sincerely for what their crew has done to their land. 
and assures them that the two of them plus the crew will be gone in the morning and Melina and Malik are resigning effective immediately. Okay. Yes. I respect that. That's really, really honorable of her to do. She realizes what's going on and is like, okay, we're out. I'm so sorry. This is not how it was supposed to go. We're leaving. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's really good of her. This was the plan. I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was still going on. My bad. No harm, no foul. We're done. Enjoy the festival. We're out of here. Yeah. It's funny, though, because Katara just started being nice to her. <laughs> not yeah, even five minutes earlier. And you know, Katara is not hearing any of this. She is just seeing Molina bad right now. She's yes. getting back into that mindset. We're back to the Zuko thing. Remember how long it took for Katara to come around and to like Zuko after finding out where she knew him the whole time as being the villain, the person who's going to hunt down the Avatar and kill him. Mm -hmm. I mean, same thing. She's like, okay, okay, Melina's not that bad. And then, oh, wait, no, she was bad all along. Yeah. It's going to take a long time (laughs) for her to get over this. Gilok hears Melina's words and tells her he can't allow them to leave and orders his soldiers to attack. As Gilok does. Melina waterbends the snow in front of her and her brother to act as a barricade, protecting them from any attacks. And she is furious at Malik. But I think this is a testament to her character. She still protects him. Yeah, because they're still brother and sister. Yeah. Melina's construction crew. Remember those guys? Remember those jerks? (laughs) Yep. They were watching and they were kind of like, well, she might need our help. And when the soldiers attack, they go, yeah, let's go. I knew they'd need us. And they rush into the fight and so do Team Avatar. Aang notes that Melina and Malik don't deserve to die for this. Mm-hmm. Aang is compassionate. He's yeah. like, all right, Malik's a jerk, but it doesn't mean he deserves to die for it. Katara and Aang will get them someplace safe and Toph will keep everyone from pummeling each other with Captain Boomerang, which is a nickname that Toph gives Sokka that Sokka will grow to love, but I refuse to because Captain Boomerang <gasps> is an actual character in DC Comics, oh don't my use God. actual existing fictional characters in a different fictional property. No, it's so perfect, though. I love it. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Can't get behind it. Also, because Captain Boomerang is a villain. Oh, okay. I just can't get behind it. I'm sorry. I can't do it. As a Marvel fan who yeah. appreciates Marvel more, doesn't bother me at all. Well, I mean, like they could have done anything. Mr. Boomerang, the Boomerang, <laughs> Sir Boomerang. It doesn't hit the same way as Captain Boomerang. That's Sergeant so Boomerang. Oh my God. Admiral Boomerang. <laughs> Literally anything else. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. So I'm not, I'm not mentioning that nickname ever again in my life for Sokka. Okay, I will. For all of you other fans of Captain Boomerang out there, I will bring it up. Outside of the festival, Hakoda hears the drill and Gilok's noise, let's call it, and they all hurry inside. While Aang and Katara fend off the enemy troops, Melina tries to explain herself to Katara, but Katara, obviously, and we talked about this, doesn't want to hear it, and finds herself knocked out by the construction crew. Melina yells at the idiots for knocking out the person trying to save them, but the crew doesn't trust any of the Southern Water tribe members, and they need to ensure the safety of Melina and Malik. Melina wants to make sure that Katara is okay, but Malik literally drags her away. Katara regains consciousness and finds freaking Todd standing over her, offering his hand in aid. He asks if she understands the meaning of the story he told her and clarifies the metaphor himself. The Northerners will never see them as anything but helpless underlings, and the only way to save themselves is to expel every 
last Northern Water Tribe member. Yep. He's like, guess what, Katara? Y'all are the snow rats. That's how they see you. You'll never be equal. You might as well throw out the foreigners now. I feel like this is so unnecessary of an explanation. I feel like everyone reading this is like, yeah, we know. Obviously. This is clearly what you're... Okay, all right, Todd. (laughs) Jeez, Todd. (laughs) Todd's trying to be Iroh so bad. Oh, God, that's... Okay, that (laughs) that further ruins his metaphor for me. So bad. Try it. It is not Iroh level. It's not even close. Oh, jeez. Todd asks if Katara will join Gilok's forces now knowing this. It takes a single look at Aang fighting the other soldiers literally right next to her for her to decline the offer. Disappointed, Todd abruptly attacks her, jabbing her shoulders. As she falls backwards, a horrified Katara realizes that Todd is a chi blocker. He would be. He would be. What a jerk. Todd. Freaking Todd. Freaking chi blocking everything. Terrible. As the fight rages on, Aang takes out some soldiers. Toph out earth bends Sunjay, which I didn't know any of the construction crew's name, but apparently the one that can earth bend is named Sunjay. Mm-hmm. So he makes Hulk hands, let's call them. And she makes yeah. larger Hulk hands. Yeah, she makes Miss Marvel Hulk hands. Yes, she does. And it's beautiful. So Toth out earth bends the construction crew earthbender and Sokka out boomerangs the boomerang guys from the secret society. And Katara is able to subdue Todd using her legs to freeze the old man in place, binding his arms so he is unable to chi block. Katara asks a nearby soldier if he's seen her father and he admits that he lost track of him at the city gates. Aang joins Katara as they go out and look for Hakoda. Outside of the city walls, Melina and Malik find themselves face to face with more chi blockers. Surprise! Todd has disciples. <laughs> yep. Malik is immediately knocked down. And when Melina uses water bending to fend off an attack, they are not only caught in a net, but both chi blockers jab Melina in her shoulders, rendering her bending inert. Melina begs for forgiveness on behalf of the semi conscious Malik. But Gilok has made up his mind, labeling her and her brother liars and betrayers of their entire tribe. And Gilok intends to make an example out of them. He swings his blade downward, but finds himself stopped mid-swing by Hakoda, who grabs his arm. When Gilok brings up the proof contained in the briefcase, Hakoda admits that he knew of this plan all along and shares that after Melina got to know the people of the Southern Water Tribe, she ended up changing her mind. Gilok believes this to be a ruse, but Hakoda brings up how people can change and actually uses Fire Lord Zuko as his example. That's a good example. Mm-hmm. Gilok furiously attacks Hakoda, now deeming him a traitor. Hakoda manages to knock the wind out of his brother in arms and reminds him of what they went through on Whale Tail Island and how Gilok saved Hakoda's life. Despite all that's happened in the last couple of days, That's how I still think of you. That's who you are to me, Hakoda tells him. Hakoda offers a hand to Gilok as a sign of forgiveness, and Gilok takes Hakoda's hand only to pull him in and stab the chieftain in the stomach. (sighs) Okay. This is where I would say the end and go to the next issue. Right. Yeah. That would be a great cliffhanger. Also, can we all just take a moment to think how dramatic this scene would be if it was Bato? Oh my God. Just think of it. Bato was Hakoda's right-hand man mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. They fought alongside each other. Hakoda led him and the other warriors. 
If this had been Bato and they broke apart because of their vastly different ideals and their vastly different perspectives of how the relationship between the North and the South should go. And it got to the point where they faced off like this. I could see the stabbing not being an eventuality because Gilak is Gilak. Of course, he's going to stab someone. And it was like Bato is driven to the point where he desperately stabs Hakoda to get him to stop. Yeah. How emotional would that be to basically betray his leader, his best friend, Mm -hmm. because they just can't see eye to eye? Like, oh my God, stab me in the heart. Yes, 110%. But if this was Bato... They would have had to have this be a four issue part. They would have had to really dive into this because uh-huh. it would have taken much more than I think this setup for Bato to stab Hakoda. Okay, here's the answer. Just take out Todd. Just take out Todd. Take out Todd. Take out the metaphor. Take Just use out. those pages to dedicate to developing Bato. You're like, yeah, there you go. And instead of like having Todd try to be Iroh, just have him be like very silent and have maybe like Sokka be like, why is that guy always quiet? He's going to do something really crazy. I just know it. And then when he starts chi blocking, (laughs) we literally get the same payoff. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Just let us write some Avatar comics. Let us us add it. (laughs) Or let us edit. Let us edit. We understand it's very, very hard to write something from scratch. That is very fair. This is why writing teams exist. Having those different perspectives weighing in. Very true. Well, as I said, this is where I would say the end, but it's not the end. And it baffles me that there's more after that crazy moment. But Melina screams as Katara and Aang rush through the city gates just in time to witness Gilok's treachery. With tears in her eyes, Katara rushes towards Gilok and raises a thick wall of ice shards around him, fencing him in. Seeing this, the other soldiers try to run, but Aang quickly snares their feet in the snow and Hakoda's forces tie up the rebels. Aang rushes to Katara, who is kneeling beside her motionless father. After staring in disbelief at the body of her father, she begins to heal his wounds. Stay with me, she says, as Melina and Malik, now freed from the net, stand over and watch. All right, here's a thought. Yes. Currently, the only waterbenders in the South are from the North, because Katara is the last Southern waterbender. Not necessarily. I don't think we have any new ones yet. We have the two kids. It's only been two years. I think they're too old. Grandpaku's new students. I want to say that they're expats from the North. I think they came... I don't think so, though. Oh, but see, I looked up the timeline. It's only been two years since the end of the Hundred Year War. Right. But as we learned from Smoke and Shadow, these kids are right around the same age as um, Key. They're about the same age as Key, maybe a little older. So that means that their waterbending could have manifested over the past couple of years. Mm, so while the Fire Nation was running around trying to get the Avatar, the children who hadn't portrayed any bending ability in the South would have been coming into their power. They could have, yeah, for sure. Okay, that would be the only way it would make sense. Yes, I, I agree. But where I was going with that is, okay, let's say the two little waterbender girls that Paku is training are actually from the South. They're probably the only ones from the South right now, which means all the other waterbenders are from the North. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that was part of Gilok's plan because he wouldn't have known that Katara and Sokka would visit. And what if he didn't expect any waterbenders to come to the South's aid because all of the waterbenders are from the North? Interesting. I did just do a little sneaker-rooney for part Uh three. I looked at Siku and Sora's wiki page on the Avatar wiki, 
And they are sibling waterbenders from the Southern Water Tribe. Ah, very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's very cool because they are the first two Southern waterbenders to be identified after Katara. I love that too because it shows a regrowth of the Southern culture. Yeah, they're starting to come back. Yeah, so cool. That is cool. Yeah. But because Katara is the only, I guess, master waterbender from the Southern tribe and she can heal, Mm -hmm. it's very, very lucky that she was there when her father got stabbed because she could come to his aid and heal him. Yeah, you call it fortunate. I call it wishy-washy writing. (laughs) Plot armor? Plot armor. Uh Uh-huh. I'm so heartless. I would have just let him die. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's Hakoda. We can't let Hakoda die. Is he going to show up again? He might. Probably not. Maybe in part three, but after part three, probably Mm -hmm. not. Because we'll have imbalance, which is going to go out on a limb and say not going to take place at the Water Tribe. Mm -hmm. And then we have Korra. Yeah. And granted, there will be more properties coming out as Avatar Studios grows, but... For that reason, we need to keep Hakoda alive because you never know how he's going to pop up. We need Grandpa Hakoda. Off with his head. Grandpa Hakoda has to be around for Aang and Katara's kids. This is terrible to say, but I honestly don't think he's... I love him. He's a great guy. I don't think he's had enough of an impact for me to be like, keep him around. I love him. I would say get rid of him and have that be something that Katara has to live with is like, what do I do with Melina now? How do I even approach Melina? Like They don't know each other well enough for that to be a thing. You're right. They'd probably go their separate ways and that would be that. And she'd probably Mm -hmm. blame Melina for his death in some way and that would be it. But like, I just like that conflict that could be there. You're just craving the conflict because you didn't get Bato involved. I know, I need conflict somewhere and Todd (laughs) is just not You're going to extremes and you're like, let's off Hakoda to get the conflict that I need. Get rid of the old man. Who needs him? (laughs) Give me that conflict. Everyone listening, Greg does not mean it. He's just in a he's in a delicate state right now. I'm being me. It's been what (laughs) eighty two episodes. I'm being me. Uh I feel like most people can recognize when I'm being ridiculous. (laughs) Later that night, while Aang and Toph wait outside, Kana, Paku, Katara, and Sokka sit in Kana's hut at Hakoda's bedside as he awakens, weak and bandaged. Sokka and Katara are thrilled and relieved, and Kana tells them to let Hakoda rest, asking that they come back in the morning. As they're leaving the hut, Kana notes how there is clearly a problem and suggests the issue is the presence of a misguided opinion and that the person, whoever they are, needs to re-examine their beliefs. Again, it's just trying to be an Iroh thing where it's like, clearly someone's in the wrong and she's keeping it just vague enough for this next part. It was vague enough that I was confused by this. It was weird to me that she turns to her grandkids and are like, you know, this isn't good. You coming to visit my hut twice in two days. This isn't good at all. Why? You're the grandmother. Exactly. And then she says, wounds flow from wrong actions. Wrong actions flow from wrong beliefs. Someone needs to re-examine their beliefs. And I was very thrown by that. I wasn't sure what was, why wouldn't they visit their grandmother? After thinking about it, I think what she means is this is, Two people in two days who have gotten hurt and have been brought to their hut and everyone has come gathered around to help nurse this person back to health. It is noted by Yang that the relationship between action and belief is a recurring topic in Eastern philosophies and that this take is a starkly different take from the unity of knowledge and action, which apparently was from the philosophy of Wang Wangyang Ming, a 16th century Chinese general. So I think that's what is coming from that. But I think the execution of it, the dialogue was a little hazy. 
Yeah, I think they're trying to get that in. They're also trying to build up this conflict, which is like, I don't want Sokka and Katara to be on opposite ends of this argument right now. Like as soon as like the next page, whenever I read a comic, my eyes just glance ahead at the art and I saw them getting aggressive with themselves, kind of like their body language changed. And I was like, no. (laughs) So here's what happens. Sokka and Katara offer their own thoughts on which group might be responsible. But surprise, they're on opposite sides because Sokka maintains that Gilok deserves to be in prison for his actions, while Katara asserts that Melina and Malik should have never tried to take the oil from the ground in the first place. How about you're both right? They're both right. I don't understand. They're like saying kind of the same thing. Uh-huh. They're arguing and agreeing at the same time. Yes. Leaving the hut, Katara and Sokka rejoin Aang and Toph. Toph tells Katara that had she known of Melina and Malik's true intentions, she would have refused to work with them. Katara says she knows this and doesn't seem to hold a grudge against the earthbending master. Melina walks up to Kana's hut and tries to apologize and explain herself to Katara, but the waterbending master is not hearing any of it. Melina tells Katara that she does not believe any of the horrible things that her brother said at the festival, and Katara accuses Melina of changing her thinking because of her feelings for Hakoda, and Katara is worried for the South if those feelings change again, maybe for the worse. Melina looks at Katara and tells the young woman that it just goes deeper than that, which is like fair. She's like, mm-hmm. Katara thinks that her father's relationship, if it goes south, pun intended, <laughs> would be the end of her entire culture. Yeah. So that's something that they are doing well in this comic. Yes. Everything is deeper and more complicated than yeah. it seems. I agree. Relationships between people who love each other are more complicated than do you love this person? Yes or no. Yeah. You know, and like Melina and Malik's plans to bring the South into the world's eye and try to make them profitable. Yeah, good idea. But the execution of that, the details of that are more complicated. So like everything in this comic, everyone's opinions and ideals and everything that everyone's trying to do, it's more complicated than that. And because of the complication, we're all butting heads. Yes. I will say this. After reading all of this about Melina, and I know it's only been two issues, But like, she seems to me like the kind of woman who, if things were to go sideways with Hakoda and they broke up, that she would not just turn evil all of a sudden and go full force with this plan. Malik, on the other hand, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. And actually, now that we're at this point, after two issues of seeing Melina, I now kind of read her as a more opinionated, feisty version of Katara and Sokka's mom. Yes. Do you get that too? I get that too. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, I can see that. Absolutely. She seems just feisty enough to be different enough from Kaya, but Mm -hmm. close enough, like similar enough. Like you can see that. The baseline is the same. Right. Like Hakoda is clearly not trying to replace his wife, his ex-wife or his dead wife, but like he needs to move on. And he found a woman who doesn't look anything like her, literally from even her haircut. But like mm-hmm. inside, she still has that same like goodness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's going to take a while for Katara to see that. <laughs> Especially after this. <laughs> Katara changes the subject and asks why Melina is outside of the hut. And Melina tells her that they were released from custody and are going to leave in the morning. Melina just wants to say goodbye to Hakoda. You don't deserve to say goodbye, Katara tells her. Sokka, I say, tries to reason with his sister, but he really is just kind of like, Katara, hand on her mm-hmm. shoulder, like, come on. Yeah. 
And before Melina can leave, because she's like, all right, fair enough, I'm about to leave, Kana opens the door and tells the woman that Hakoda wants to see her. And here, I'm sorry, I'm very opinionated on this issue. I apologize to everyone who enjoyed it. But like, Gilok sits in his lonely prison cell and a female officer walks up to the door holding a food tray. She tells him that she had heard of the accusations he made at the festival. She slides the tray under the door and walks away. She tells him she never trusted the Northerners. Searching the tray, Zhao, I mean, Gilok, finds the key to his cell and smiles. It is a very Zhao moment, isn't it? He's not even cool like Zhao, though. And he's from the Southern Water Tribe. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, he is kind of like a Zhao wannabe. We have an Iroh wannabe. We have a Zhao wannabe here. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, man. It's just Here's a fun fact, though. Yes. The key was originally going to be hidden in a book. Mm -hmm. And then Michael Dante Diamartino suggested hiding the key under a bowl of food. So that was going to make it a little bit more natural, but... You're right. The rest of it is very much Zhao energy. And I'm also, I can't help but think, like, what if it was Bato? Bato was thrown in jail. Yeah. And maybe another warrior approaches him and is like, I was always on your side. And I agree. We need to preserve our way of life and our culture. We need mm-hmm. to get the Northerners out. Rather than, I never liked the Northerners. Something a little bit more nuanced. Like, I'm here for you, brother. And I agree. We need to preserve our way of life. Here. Yes. Bust out. I absolutely agree with that. It's just, I don't know if it's just, I hate Gilok so much because he's not Bato, but it just soured everything. And now I'm just seeing all the little nitpicky things and I don't know. I have not even touched book three yet. So hopefully that kind of brings it around. I haven't read it either. We'll see. We'll see. We believe in Yang and Gurihiru. We love them. We do. We love all their stories. We'll see what they do. Mm -hmm. But it's just one of those things where it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yes. I can't unsee Bato as the antagonist now. I'm for sure going to follow this duo as well, just so everyone knows. I yep. love them very much. I'm just clearly very protective of Avatar and everything in it. And, yeah. you know, I'm very opinionated on that matter. And I'm not going to apologize for that. But I can't wait. I got my hands on the Superman comic that Yang and Goody Hero teamed up for. And I can't wait to read <gasps> it. I can't wait yeah. to read it. Okay, anyways, this is the end. If you didn't know from my rants. The, the end. end. Acorn. I need to know who your MVP is. It's not Gilok, that's for if sure. If you said Gilok, I would have stopped this recording. <laughs> it would never have been released. And they would disassembled as a team. That would have been it. Just kidding. I'm glad I didn't tease you then. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't play with fire. Jeez, who is the MVP? Mm-hmm. It's kind of tough. And it's not tough. Not for me, anyways. Yeah, I know. I mean, Toph comes in and kicks butt, but... That's about... I mean, yeah, that's just I mean, Toph being Toph. Toph being Toph, yeah. 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 <sighs> okay. Mm-hmm. I guess it has to be Melina. I agree. I 100% yeah. agree. It didn't come to me immediately, but after thinking back on the comic, Melina is the MVP in the definition of what MVPs are for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's the mover and shaker. She's the one who is trying to stand up for what's right. She's trying to fix things and she has good intentions and all of that. So it has to be her. Yes, I agree. Uh, if I had to pick someone else, just so we're not both saying Melina, I would probably say Hakoda. Yeah, it's obvious since they're a couple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're a the, thing. They're so. the power couple of this trilogy right yeah. now, for sure. Yep. But officially, I think I'm going to agree Melina with Hakoda being like a, a runner-up, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really do have to point out again that it takes a lot for someone to come in with 
all of these intentions and all of these plans and to get so involved in the construction process of a project mm-hmm. and then be shown this nasty little, you know, like the worm at the base of the tower kind of thing, like this nasty little detail that she wasn't aware of. And then just to abandon everything because mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do. Yeah. That's big of her. Yeah. She very clearly has a moral compass and is mm-hmm. not afraid to stick to it. And I think that's very refreshing to see in secondary characters. I feel like in, yeah. in in our main characters, that's almost expected, especially in Avatar, where Zuko kind of like learns about his moral compass and figures it out. And once he does, he really sticks to it. It's nice to see Melina, who's obviously quite a bit older than Team Avatar, know what's right, know what's wrong, and just stay the course, essentially, even if it goes against her brother. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What do you think the moral of the issue is? Don't drill for oil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Don't yes. do it. We live in a world with, with bending. Just go green. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no reason why you can't just use solar power or water turbines once you uh-huh. figure it out. Or even, I don't know, the wind. Yeah. Don't even need an airbender for that. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Aside from that, we come back to this concept a lot that it takes effort and dedication to explore complicated subjects complicated situations where multiple viewpoints are involved. And it's not so simple. You really have to consider the different sides at play. And if one has too much power or too much influence, then it can sour the whole thing. Mm. So you really have to be conscientious of the two sides that are involved and get both sides of the story and make sure that you're making the best decision for everyone, which in this case, it's less Northern influence and more Southern voice. Yeah. For me, mine's not as large as yours, I guess, or not like a larger theme. I think that is the moral of the issue. But I took out a smaller one, Mm -hmm. a little more specific. And it's that if you're not great at giving wise anecdotes, just don't. (laughs) Leave it to Iroh. (laughs) Leave it to Iroh or Boomy. Uh The White Lotus, basically. Or any of the other members of the White Lotus. (laughs) Absolutely. Just don't, Todd. Just don't. Go back to your ice cave. Just go back to your ice cave <laughs> and just think uh, about your stories to yourself and just cheap block a block of ice or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't oh know, Oh, boy. There we go. We got our big moral and our there little our moral. Little one. There we go. But I, I think yours is actually the moral of the issue. It absolutely <laughs> is. Uh, and that's it. That's the episode. Everyone, thank you again so, so much for joining us on each episode where we talk about the comics. We only have four more comics left. That's mind-blowing. Oh my gosh. I thought this day would never come. I love the comics. I've been really enjoying it. I'm glad we're reading it, but I am so ready to jump back into an animated series. Yes. I Gosh, Korra is on the horizon. Mm-hmm. I am so excited. We started talking about our cover art because you all know like we like to get our new cover art per season. Mm-hmm. So that's coming. You know what's terrible? What's that? My head is already thinking about and spinning about a Korra pin and we haven't even released the book three pin yet. Oh gosh, I know. <laughs> We're sorry, everyone. Sorry. It'll happen. After the comics are over, before Korra, uh-huh. we'll get a pin out there. It will be a book three. We'll, we'll get the pin designed by then, let's say. Yes, there we go. There we go. As soon as I said that, Acorn was like, ah, okay, by designed by then. And it will, <laughs> yes. it will be worth the wait, let's just say. Yes. Let's all just keep our sights on the new year yes. for new things. Absolutely. Okay. 
And if you've listened to all the episodes, you've done next week's, I feel like a teacher, you've done next week's reading and have taken your notes and you're ready for <laughs> North and South Part 3, and you haven't left a five-star written review, go do it right now. Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. If you want us to read it, because, spoiler, if you don't write it, we can't read it because that's how written language works. And you haven't emailed a theory to avatarthepodcast at gmail.com and you haven't tweeted at us at Podcast Avatar. Uh, if you haven't listened to all the secret podcast episodes on Patreon, you should do all that. But if you're an overachiever like myself, and I use that term very loosely when describing myself, because I'm not, <laughs> you can always join me over at twitch.tv slash boostergreg on Monday and Friday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. By the time this episode is released, we would have beaten Stray. So those videos will be saved on my Twitch page. And it's such a good game. I'm so bummed that it's going to be over. It's, I know. It was so cute. And it warms and breaks my heart every turn of the way. What a fantastic thing to go through. But uh, come hang out with me. Or if you yeah. if you don't want to go on Twitch, you can just tweet at me like many people have. At Booster Greg. At Booster Greg. That's right. Or, you know, anywhere on the interwebs that you can find me at Booster Greg. What about you, Acorn? Well... First of all, since you mentioned Stray, if anyone is a fan of cyberpunk and cats, I have to say Stray, the makers of Stray, partnered with another company to make a cyberpunk Stray version cat backpack. Ooh. So that exists out there. It's probably going to be a limited time thing. It looks very cool. So go check it out. Huh. But other than that, you can find me online as well at Acorn Bandit. You can also find me at Joyson Studio. But like we mentioned... Joey Sons is currently on a hiatus. We are on vacation as we do some things behind the scenes. So keep your eyes on the new year for new stuff. But otherwise, you can find me online at Acorn Bandit. Yeah. Well, coming up next time. North and South Part 3 and the end of Yankee. <laughs> They're gone. They're leaving us on a Gilock note. All right. Oh. Well, we'll see you next time on Avatar, Avatar the Podcast. podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com. 